really hard to talk about eating disorders without talking about trauma because eating disorders are incredibly adaptive, despite them usually over time for most people causing quite a bit of suffering and harm. I believe that all coping is rooted in wisdom, even if it's maladaptive. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Catherine Metzelar. Catherine is a registered nutritionist and also an eating disorder specialist who incorporates mindfulness into her work with clients. She works with people around body image, dieting, and perfectionism, and she also has a strong analysis of the ways that culture will impact our relationship to food and eating. In our conversation, we discuss the prevalence of eating disorders and their relationship to trauma, the ways that undernourishment can impact our capacity to be mindful, how the spectrum of eating disorders connects to traumatic stress, what research says about the relationship between addiction and eating and how this connects to mindfulness, cultural assumptions about thinness and fatness and how this can play out in clinical work, and also why a trauma-informed lens is so powerful in any work around nutrition. Catherine was great to talk to. She has a ton of experience in the areas of nutrition and mindfulness, and she also brings a very strong trauma-informed lens to her practice. So that's the reason I wanted to have her on. I learned a ton in this conversation, and I hope you do as well. So without further delay, here's Catherine Metzelar. I'm here with Catherine Metzelar. Catherine, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're so welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation. We were talking offline about people that were working around diet culture, eating disorders in various capacities. And I know that you've been doing some work around trauma-sensitive mindfulness. And so it just seemed like, I know there's people in the community who are interested in this topic or working there, and it seemed like it could just be a great conversation to be in. So do you mind just letting people know how you spend your time and how did you become interested in working with eating disorders? So I came and arrived to the field of eating disorders because of my own experience with my own eating disorder. I pursued my master's in nutrition when I was still very much stuck in my eating disorder, but was not aware of it because so much of the behaviors associated with eating disorders are very much normalized in our culture. And so for me at the time... I just was thinking, well, I just need to go and get my master's so that I can officially sort of give people advice, Mm -hmm. only to find out when I finally went to school that that I did have an eating disorder. And that's when Mm -hmm. I finally started to to reach out for help and get support. Mm -hmm. So, so much of where I ended up is because of my own experience, but it most certainly didn't start that way. It started with just, you know, a desire to want to learn more about the field of nutrition. Can you say something about when you said normalize that caught my attention about that? eating disorders might be more normalized or unseen in in culture? Because I imagine we'll be connecting dots also to trauma and and larger systems. But could you say more about that? Yeah. So I have a couple of things to say about it. One is that so much of the presentation of the way we are really told about eating disorders or the way that we're informed about eating disorders is depicted in a very specific way. And to be more specific, um, oftentimes in culture and in media, eating disorders are are presented often as anorexia. And within that, it it is presented as um, usually a white affluent woman in a very, very thin body. Mm 
But the reality is, first of all, eating disorders don't have a look. That's important. Second of all, um, that is actually a minority of the presentation of the way eating disorders present. That most people that have eating disorders are walking around in larger bodies, in um, thin bodies, and don't have that kind of outward presentation. And so because of things like weight stigma, like fat phobia, um, we... and in addition to that, the kind of cultural presentation of what we are told eating disorders, quote unquote, look like, Mm -hmm. we assume that we can tell by looking at someone if they have an eating disorder. So there's that. And Mm -hmm. also many of the behaviors that are associated with eating disorders are very much elevated in this culture uh, and praised. So if we think about restriction, Mm. if we think about um, cutting out certain foods or food groups, when we think about over-exercising, all of these things are upheld in what we call diet culture, the dieting culture that we exist in as being um, uh, sort of incredible or moral or that you have this wonderful sense of self-control when in fact, you know, it's an, it's an interesting dichotomy too when you're sick and you're stuck in the eating disorder because so many people are praising the exact behaviors that are making you quite unwell, which is part of what makes it hard to recover too. That's so powerful. I was just hanging out actually with my friends who have a two-year-old and we were talking about power. And uh, for this two-year-old, there was probably the the few places that they could exert any control was around, um, they didn't like their diaper changed and also around food. Those are the two places where there was a sense of actually some agency. And I you're automatically I'm now considering ways that I have certain ideas about what disordered eating is and how it relates to control or trauma, but I'm realizing I'm going to get to be here with you really as, as a learner. So is there a definition of disordered eating? Like what do we mean by disordered eating or how do you think about it? Yeah, it's a great question because it can get confusing for most folks because a lot of times we have some concept or understanding of what eating disorders are, even if we don't know everything about them. The way that I really like to think about it is that it's a spectrum. Hmm. So most certainly there are plenty of people that have either been diagnosed or could be diagnosed uh, with an eating disorder because they they fit very specific criteria that's determined by the di- diagnostic statistical manual that we use for diagnoses of mental health conditions. Um, but there are lots of people that wouldn't fit sort of check the boxes or tick the boxes, if you will, of all the criteria of an eating disorder, but are engaging in the same kinds of behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, we're looking at a spectrum. It's really about frequency of behaviors that we're mostly looking at, um, but that it all exists on the same spectrum, that it's not mm. like we segment eating disorders separate from disordered eating. It really just the question often is, as I said, where does someone lie on that spectrum? Does it overlap to you with trauma? In I've heard people talk about a trauma spectrum where we might have post-traumatic stress disorder, which as I understand about three and a half percent of a population at any moment will be experiencing PTSD. And then there's a whole wider spectrum in there of people who are experiencing different degrees, post-traumatic stress, maybe just instances of trauma that aren't creating longer symptoms. Does that seem like a a fair parallel for you around a spectrum of trauma? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the interesting thing too that I'm thinking of as we're talking through this is that 
so many people are, first of all, walking around suffering, thinking that they don't deserve help and support because they don't fit that that presentation of what we've been told right. disordered eating or eating disorders look like, but also that lots of people are dismissed based on um, things like racism and things like anti-fatness and anti-trans and various forms of oppression that don't allow a lot of people to have access or even awareness to the suffering that they're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say there's a relationship between eating disorders and trauma? And if so, I know it's a big question, but could you talk a little bit or just start to connect those dots uh, if there's a relationship or not? Yeah. I think it's really hard to talk about eating disorders without talking about trauma because eating disorders are incredibly adaptive, despite them usually over time for most people causing quite a bit of suffering and harm. I believe that all coping is rooted in wisdom, even if it's maladaptive. And so eating disorders arise initially, usually it's the behaviors themselves as a way to cope with things that feel overwhelming, things that happen to people in their lives. And so if we think about it from a popular culture perspective, the thing that we're presented with that we have some sense of control or access to is how we are feeding and nourishing our bodies or how we're engaging in what some call exercise or as I like to call movement. And if we dig a little bit deeper, you know, we learn pretty quickly that not eating leads to numbing out. We're able to not feel things anymore. Um, that can also apply to eating beyond our fullness or what some call overeating, that we are we get to experience a sense of disembodiment or distraction from anything that is feeling overwhelming to our system. And so I will explain a lot of times to my clients that at first, usually these behaviors feel at minimum okay or sometimes even good. Mm -hmm. when they start mm -hmm. to happen, but it's through the repetition of them and the impact that they have over time that it makes it really difficult to to, to stop doing them, to stop engaging in them, but also people um, are suffering quite a bit. And so we can't really separate, you know, we have to think about, you know, what is the impact of the dieting culture that we exist in on the development of eating disorders? But we also have to think about how is this eating disorder helping someone to, well, how is it an attempt to regulate one's own nervous system based on the experiences that they've had in their own body? Wow. That's where this work seems to go right to the deep end right away. That it's not, I imagine when you're working with people, it's never just a I'm at superficial conversation that you're really getting into the deep end pretty quickly. I love what you said around behaviors that, how did you say that around? They might be adaptive or maladaptive, but you're really, doesn't sound like as much shaming in that process. It's really just a, a curiosity that you're bringing to someone's behavior, like what's working, what's not. Is that fair? Yes, that's incredibly fair. Yeah. That I really want and believe that there's a tremendous amount of wisdom that we all have within our bodies and most certainly the, the people that I get the pleasure of working with and supporting. And so if we can connect to their their survivability, their desire to want to um, continue, their resiliency, that that the eating disorder has developed as a result of that, not because mm -hmm. they chose it or because something is wrong with them, that the alternative to not using the only uh, things that we had access to would be 
you know, to completely disassociate, to develop some other mental health condition. Mm -hmm. And so absolutely, I am approaching everything. In fact, a lot of the the my clients joke with that, like I keep hearing your voice thinking, okay, get curious, get curious. Yeah. yeah <laughs> because yeah. there is quite a bit of judgment, of mm-hmm. uh, harshness towards towards themselves because they feel like they should just be able to think their way out of not having an eating disorder. I wonder if we could bring in mindfulness a little bit here to talk about how you'd see mindfulness or meditation practices supporting people or whether you bring it or not. I'll just share a personal story. I I feel like I definitely had a form of disordered eating in my 20s, early 20s. Uh, I was in Vancouver and it was really one of the first times that I had been out on my own. Uh, I'd been, I was at university for the first time and I was, I was eating a lot of sugar. I'd say I was binging on sugar mm-hmm. and um, couldn't stop, was just having a lot of difficulty and ended up going to see a therapist around it. Just It just felt out of control. And I was trying to find, I think I was feeling so out of control that I was trying to find anything I could hold on to and sweets and sugar and that pleasure of being one, though I'd feel quite terrible after. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a book around mindfulness that ended up being a doorway for me. I had actually forgotten about this until we were talking right now. And I, I wish I could remember it. Maybe I will, or you will. But this, the opening story is, is of a mom who's the writer, who's saying that she had bought a cookie for her and her maybe four-year-old child. And that she broke the cookie in half and gave the cookie to, to her kid and just immediately just ate the cookie really quickly. And then noticed that her son was actually really enjoying the cookie. Like, wow, this is great. And, and so she made a deal with herself. If the way out of my disordered eating is I can eat whatever I want, but I need to stay awake. Mm. There needs to be a quality of attention that I'm going to keep paying about when the pleasure is and when the ending happens and when I start to feel nauseated. And so that was a big part of my ride was just committing to being awake as much as possible in the eating. Mm. So I'm wondering, is that a part of your practice or how do you, I know you're interested in mindfulness and trauma, but I don't know how you work with it. So. So absolutely. The, the, the short answer is yes, it is most certainly a significant part of the work that I do. And I'll, I'll explain the longer answer to that because I think it's <laughs> yeah, <sure>. relevant. <laughs> we, got, we got time. Yeah, we got time. Um, which is one of the things that I really like to emphasize is that it's quite difficult for many to be mindful, to bring a uh, intentional awareness to our experience in this case with food and therefore maybe um, subsequently the the physical sensations that we're noticing as they start, you know, on the outside looking at it all the way through our body. It's really hard and difficult to engage in mindfulness when we are undernourished. So a lot of times, mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of times I'm working with my clients first to make sure that they are nourished enough Because being undernourished is very threatening to our physiology. Right. And so there's no, again, that's another example of there's no way of thinking ourselves out of or into mindfulness if our brain, because we have all kinds of physiological systems that work so hard to make sure that we get access to food. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's a really important part of this conversation that I'm 
often really focusing on in my work with that's clients. Huge. That's a huge light bulb moment for me where I had not considered that if someone was not, in this case, it sounds like the disordered eating was be someone's not eating enough, that there would be attacks, I'm, as it sounds like you're saying, on our neurophysiology, where it's actually just a lot harder to be in our prefrontal cortex, probably the amygdala is firing. Wow. And I, I just never, this is so cool because so much of the work is about um, understanding where mindfulness will be helpful or unhelpful. It sounds like you're actually, that sounds like a domestic violence uh, type approach around safety. I'm here, I hear some echoes there of like, we're not just going to move towards doing deep trauma work, but let's make sure there's a form of actual material safety. Would that be a fair comparison? Totally a fair comparison. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also think it's important to note that when I say undernourishment, just for those that are listening, to mm. just notice what image comes to mind, because it tends to be the kind of image that I was talking about a moment ago, someone that's in a very thin body, when in fact, that often, again, is not the case, that we can be undernourished no matter what size body that we're in. And even for those that, for example, are experiencing binge eating, they still might not be eating consistently or eating enough. And so, again, it's also applicable. The other part of this as well is I'm thinking about the impact of restriction on someone's experience if we connect it again to mindfulness. So when we restrict food or food groups, um, it naturally leads to, because of what's happening from a physiological perspective, a hyperfixation on food. And mm-hmm. so it's very difficult to be mindful with something when one, we're not sure when we're going to get it again. Our brain and body aren't sure. Um, and two, we're not, we don't have enough energy or capacity to be able to be mindful in the first place. And then three, as you mentioned, it is a direct threat to our nervous system when we are undernourished. I really hadn't thought about that, but the level of energy then that would be going towards the next meal. I mean, I even when I'm feeling good about food, I'm still I'm still often thinking like, what am I going to eat next? And a certain amount of energy goes there. And I appreciate you saying that. I did go immediately to the image that you said. I just go to someone who's quite thin and it's so deep in there. You're, you're helping me realize I didn't, I didn't even realize that's where I go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. That people in all size bodies can right. be undernourished. Mm-hmm. This seems like maybe a good bridge to talk about trauma sensitivity and why because there's been a couple of uh, people that i've met who are interested in the trauma sensitive mindfulness work who said gosh there's so many overlaps here with the work that i'm doing around as a nutritionist or around eating disorders and so i'm wondering um based on your experience of trauma training or trauma sensitivity what's useful for you about being trauma informed inside of your work and how, how might that look different from a nutritionist who isn't, doesn't have that lens? I love this question. So I'm going to start with the traditional way that we are trained as, as nutritionists, as dietitians that maybe would be helpful as a starting point so that we can start to distinguish maybe some of the differences related to how I practice and how I do this work. So we are trained in the medical model as dietitians, much like doctors and nurses and other clinicians are, that we are the experts. We are the experts of other people's bodies. 
we have all of the information. It's a very top-down process. Mm -hmm. And we are trained to educate, to give advice, and truthfully, to create the path to allow people to move towards thinness, right? That we are um, told that being in a larger body has certain health implications, which I'm happy to elaborate on why that is not true and why that's not the case. But nonetheless, we are in the traditional medical model, we are trained to make people thin, um, that we are the experts, and um, that we are going to educate people. And that's how you do it. You know, maybe you go in, you give a handout, you tell people how to eat and how to move, mm. and you're done. Mm. And I would add in addition to that, that there are quote unquote good foods and bad foods and a specific way of eating that is, is okay. That seems so deep about good foods, bad foods. That seems like a whole two hour conversation. Yes, could I could have. talk. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, endlessly about that. Yeah. So that's generally from a high level how we're trained and sort of broad stroking there. And there's most certainly nuance um, to, to it, but I think that pretty accurately depicts uh, how we are traditionally trained. The way that instead, if we're looking at it from a trauma-informed lens in regards to how I'm working with clients and humans, is that I am not approaching this work as being an expert of somebody else's body. I believe that I know some things that can be helpful, but that I'm working as best as I can to really be a human with them in the process of healing. And I do that by helping them to connect to their own sense of wisdom that has always existed within their body, that they are the experts of their body, not me and not anybody else. And I'm also working towards really challenging food beliefs, myths, and ways of nourishing oneself, but in a way that is guided by them. And that can mean the pace of things, whether or not it's okay that I share things, that everything I'm doing is very centered on the person that is in front of me, their own lived experience, their willingness, and everything is done from a permission perspective. That's great. Mm -hmm. It sounds like, well, I hear an overlap here with trauma that I want to ask you around helping someone. Well, first I hear allyship. There's a quality of, almost the image I have is more shoulder to shoulder that you're with someone versus sort of the top-down model. Though there is a tension there that I'd love to explore with you about you are holding, they're coming to you for some form of expertise. So that always seems like a, a balance. But the trauma question I had for you is about feeling one's body and what you said about one's inherent wisdom that you're helping them connect with and that you're a facilitator for. One of the main costs of traumatic stress is often that people have a difficult relationship with sensations, as you know. And, and so befriending sensations becomes a really important part of any kind of healing process, which is where mindfulness, I think, can be so helpful, yes. is uh, this an increased inner awareness or this interoceptive awareness. So how do you work with people who might come in and just feel numb? or feel very disconnected from their bodies and 
maybe aren't picking up on those cues. As because as we're talking about this, I'm realizing, wow, here is there's just so many layers here to where trauma would beget an eating disorder, which would then reinforce the other. So how do you work when someone's numb? Most people are numb. Yeah, it right. Is. Myself included often. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So I want to normalize that experience. And that's most certainly something that I do in my work. Um, well, I'll take a couple of steps back. So one of the important parts of increasing connection, let's say after we've been working on consistent and adequate nourishment, because that's always step one. Okay. Right? But a lot sometimes alongside of that or after that, it's not necessarily like step one and then step two, um, we're doing things possibly at the same time, is that we first and foremost ease into things very slowly, that there is no speed to things. And that there, as I said, everything is an invitation and that I'm either in session guiding my clients and or if it's appropriate um, outside of session, encouraging them to begin to notice things, but we don't start with what is um, the most challenging, like going right to similar to the work that you do, we don't go right to just, okay, what does it feel like to be inside your body, Mm -hmm. for example, or what kind of sensations are you noticing? That I'm often, for example, with my clients, when I'm sensing that it might be helpful or appropriate, I'm just simply starting with, can we notice our feet on the ground and the physical Mm -hmm. sensation there, right? Just sort of very similar to, um, you know, the the ways that you might or others might begin to integrate a mindful awareness of physical sensations in the body. Because as you mentioned, so much of the development of the eating disorder is an attempt to not be in the body. Right. And so we have to go slow. And I'm also educating along the way so that about um, trauma, about their nervous system, and that we get to stop at any point, but it's sort of in a titrated way, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Thinking of how difficult it would be to be a dietitian and not be working with some of the principles that you're naming, probably because we're both so in the work that we're doing, it's hard to imagine not being trauma-informed based on how deep it is. Again, getting back to just thinking about my friend's kid, it's, it's just from the get food is so central to us and the way it's so deeply embedded in culture. And so um, you're just, I, I guess you're speaking to how important the trauma piece is. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting because I talk about interceptive awareness quite a bit as well, because if we're talking about being attuned to things like hunger and fullness, we have to be in the body. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. And so if someone is numb and disconnected because of their own lived experience, we can't simply just say to someone that's experiencing, for example, disordered eating, well, just pay attention to your hunger, full, uh, hunger and fullness. Just respect your fullness and honor your hunger. Mm-hmm. And most people are like, I have no idea what that feels like. Or they are very used to existing on the spectrum of being incredibly hungry or quite overly full. And so mm-hmm. developing a practice of noticing the nuance, of course, requires that we be in our body. But if our body doesn't feel safe to be in, there's lots of steps that we need to take before we can even access things like that. That's where the mindfulness practice seems like it would be such a potential win or, or competence to hold of in terms of being able to go 
slowly and steadily towards starting to befriend sensations. Because as you're saying, if someone's saying, I cannot feel those cues, I don't want to feel those cues. It sounds like if I'm hearing you right, you're starting with, we could call them, I don't know, mindful resourcing practices or something that's enabling someone to enter into the body, but perhaps uh, in a way that feels supportive more than triggering. Is that in my ball in the ballpark there? Yes, that's exactly yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah. And that we're I'm gauging and we're gauging together how um, ready and there's no uh, there's no right necessarily right way of doing this or knowing, but how ready someone is to take it one step for, further. But right. we're never going right into things that is. Right from a trauma-informed lens, that would be really harmful, but it is the way that we are trained and that most medical professionals operate. You know, we're trained mm -hmm. as dietitians to just get right in there. Of course. Even though, you know, of course the intention is to help, but it causes quite a bit of harm. Yeah, no doubt. Can you talk a little bit about your take on the world <laughs> right now? The, <laughs> I, and I asked that, I'll give, some, I'll give some background around that. So I was listening to a podcast recently with, um, it was Sam Harris and another guest. And Sam was asking, it was a psychologist in Toronto. And he said, what do you make of the fact that however many tens of thousands of years into this human experiment we are, and we don't really have answers to the, don't seem to have answers to the questions, what's the meaning of life and what mm -hmm. should we eat? Like what should we put in? What should we put in our bodies? And yes. and sometimes I look at the world, and you know I've experimented with different diets and for health stuff, doing some paleo and you know all the different fads. And so it just seems to be an ongoing cycle that I'm sure is also related to consumerism. But can you where what do you, what's your assessment of the state of affairs right now? And are there any memes? <laughs> that you actually believe in. I saw like health at every size. Is that huh? one? I'm just wondering where, yeah. where you, what's your take right now and where we're at? I think it's really hard to understand how to feed and nourish ourselves and to distinguish fact from fiction, if you will, considering the culture that we exist in. Yeah. So it is very easy to manipulate data and science. And this can be applied to many things, of course. And including mindfulness, <laughs> including mindfulness, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Don't even get me started on, um, the state of other world affairs right now, but nonetheless, mm. um, and so it makes it really confusing, right? One minute we're told that we should be eating a food. The next minute we're told that we shouldn't be eating it. We're told that certain foods are addictive, we're told that things can cause a lot of harm to our body. And it often leaves us just feeling so confused about how to nourish ourselves, especially, you know, if we're operating from a place of genuine care for our well being and our bodies, we're just kind of lost in the sauce, of course. I mean, that is so much of what contributed to my eating disorder, which was orthorexia, um, which is I've sort never of this. Heard that. Orthorexia, you said? Yeah, so it's mm -hmm. not officially in the DSM, although we hope as clinicians it will be in the new iteration in the future. Mm -hmm. Some people classify it as a subcategory of anorexia, but the focus tends not to be on the pursuit of or obsession with being in a thin body, much like we think of as anorexia, um, but it's rather this uh, belief or felt sense that the body is this clean, 
almost precious vessel and that there's a lot of fear around causing harm to the body. And that shows up in not wanting to eat certain foods or food groups or certain ingredients, not wanting to expose oneself to certain chemicals. Mm. Um, And over time, it tends to get more and more and more restrictive to the point at which you are experiencing, many people experience a ton of anxiety, which I most certainly did around eating. Um, You're only able to eat at home if you're cooking or in certain places. Mm. Um, It can lead to nutrient deficiencies. Um, And a lot of the same symptomology shows up with orthorexia that shows up with other eating disorders. And so I share that because most certainly the culture that we exist in impacted the development of my eating disorder. It started from a place of care and concern for my own well-being. And I wasn't able to disseminate research. And unfortunately, I hate the fact that you have to have a higher degree of education to be able to read research. But nonetheless, it was like, well, Google is gospel. And if somebody says it or somebody says that research supports it, then I believe it. And so it really fueled the fire of me cutting out more and more foods over time. Mm, So all of that to say, I I hear the um, sort of distress and confusion that a lot of people have. And I understand why someone might be pulled towards wanting to engage in a certain kind of diet, formal diet like paleo or keto or noom or other diets that exist out there. And yet we know that diets and it could be formal diets or just the restriction or cutting out of certain foods and food groups are not sustainable. There is not a single piece of long-term research that supports the longevity of engaging in diets What we do know, though, is that the people that engage with diets and do, for example, end up losing weight and maintaining it long-term are doing so by engaging in disordered behaviors. And so if we're approaching it from a do-no-harm lens, if we know that the development of eating disorders for many starts from the engagement with diets, um, as well as the impact on someone's mental and physical well-being, then encouraging people to diet, to cut out foods and to restrict foods is, is pretty harmful. Oh, interesting. So what would you say to someone who, I imagine you might get pushback or I don't know if you do often, but All someone the time. who, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, I've been hearing this on someone like Joe Rogan um, on his podcast who, who I'm curious, I don't know your opinion on him, but where he seems to have a particular thing around I'd say like a pro-diet culture, not necessarily the restrictive eating that we've been talking about, but more like in in something in response to what you just said might push back and say, well, but we want to celebrate people who decide that they're not at a weight that they want to be, they cut their calories, they exercise, they feel better, that that should be something that should be celebrated as opposed to when when, when you were just talking, I thought, oh, that's actually also really bringing, shedding light on the ways that it could be harmful if we're constantly celebrating, um, or sorry, harmful if uh, restricted eating and diets were always, were always celebrated. So how do you, how do you navigate this, that tension? I will not go on a soapbox about my opinions of Joe Rogan in this moment. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to hold that. It's been a whole podcast. Um, I think So in relation to how do we, if I got pushed back from someone that was like, shouldn't we celebrate this? What we want to be mindful first and foremost is that 
you know, part of when we think about like, what is diet culture is not only the promotion of thinness at all costs, no matter the impact on physical, uh, mental and physical well-being, hmm. but it's also the assumption and presumption that thinness always means, and weight loss always means something positive. I cannot tell you how many people, or the I would say the majority, I can safely say of the clients that I've worked with over years, talk about how much praise they got when they were in the eating disorder or engaging in, in disordered eating. It was endless, whether it was because of a change in their body size or because they fit um, a certain ideal that this culture tells us we should fit into, a certain beauty ideal. And that only reinforces and often colludes with the eating disorder and disordered eating. So we presume that when someone loses weight, that things are great, that they're healthy. We have a lot of biases about that, that we presume that things are going well when oftentimes they're not or they might not be. And so we mm -hmm. really want to be careful about celebrating someone's weight loss Lots of people experience weight loss when they're going through depression, when they experience loss of someone and other really difficult things, um, illness. And also on the flip side of that, a lot of times when people gain weight, it means that they are quite healthy in comparison to where they were before. If we take it in the context of the eating disorder, it's a very common outcome that people will gain weight in recovery because most people are weight suppressed regardless of their body size. Um, and yet the backlash that they get from the culture and from the people around them is you've gained weight, you're unhealthy, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Are you sure this is a good idea? When in fact, they are the healthiest that they've ever been, but it's because of people's own weight stigma and the way that this culture sees fatness and fat on people's bodies. Can you talk about where that comes from? You're actually just helping me realize as we get into the deeper end of the topic that I do hold that belief somewhere deep down. And I have been, I've had experiences. I, I'm, I trend, trend on the thinner side and have times where I've been, people have made comments about my body or I've been around friends who lost weight and were going through something for one person in eating disorder. And they were getting a lot of positive feedback from others. And they said it was so confusing mm -hmm. to be experiencing so much distress internally and emotionally, and yet have the outside world reflecting basically praising um, the changes. Where does that, maybe this is a massive conversation, but what is that rooted in? Where does that come from? The elevation of thinness and the yeah. demonization of fatness. Yeah. I imagine there's books and tombs written about this, but. Yeah, absolutely. So from, insofar as we know, a lot of it is rooted in racism. So there's a wonderful book called Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. And she talks about how um, uh, when people from Africa were brought over to the U.S., when slaves were here, um, there was a lot of beliefs that people had about Black folks and a lot of differences in presentation in body and body shape. And so one of the ways that white people began to distinguish themselves as the superior quote unquote, huge quote, superior race was to say, not only do we eat differently than them because we are not uh, like them, but also we don't have bodies like them that were um, or tended to be maybe more curvaceous in certain places. Mm -hmm. And so it's really difficult. This is why it's so um, 
uh, interwoven. It's difficult to talk about diet culture um, without talking about its origins that are from racism and mm. based in white supremacy. I'd never heard similar about trauma. I feel like where it's, you can't really talk about trauma without talking about social condition, historical conditions, that it doesn't, doesn't always have to just head right into identity politic right away, but it's just important to actually consider the history in which these we and different people are being raised in. So Totally. And it's also really difficult to separate it from systems like capitalism. So, you know, people make a lot of money off encouraging other people to pursue weight loss. And it's interesting to think about that in the context of set point weight theory, if you mm. are aware of what it is. I don't. I could imagine, but maybe you could explain what it is. Yeah. So set point weight theory, conceptually, sometimes I think it's helpful to think about it as sort of the opposite of calories in, calories out. So what it proposes, insofar as we know from the research and what we understand, is that we are all born with a set, I, I really like to think about it as a set range instead of a set point, but mm -hmm. we are all born from a genetic perspective with a set range at which our body feels most comfortable and most safe being at. And for the most part, a lot of what influences that range is most certainly genetics, a big one, certain medications. There's some beginnings of understanding of, of trauma, which we're still trying to, to understand. And very important, our history of eating disorder, disordered eating, and diets. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is we have this range but a lot of people's range or many people's range will change over time. And why is that? It kind of goes upwards. A lot of, you'll hear it in the culture as, well, I went on this diet and it quote unquote worked and I lost weight and then I gained weight, but then I gained more. And then right. I went on another diet and that happened over and over and over again. And people's body size might increase over time. And that's because their range is changing because it is so threatening to our body. Our bodies are incredibly adaptive and it starts to make changes to make sure that if we are in an environment again where we don't have access to food, because remember our brain can't distinguish that threat, even though we might be surrounded by food and have lots of privilege and access, that it wants to make sure that that's not going to happen again. So there's, there's actually physiological changes that take place to assure that once you get below a certain range, that certain processes will start to happen so that we become hyperfixated on food, mm -hmm. that we start to feel out of control around food, um, and other things that tend to happen in that context to mm -hmm. keep us, our body fights very hard to keep us within that set range. That's fascinating. It makes mm -hmm. sense. Can you talk about sweets for a moment? And if it's okay, I want to tell a quick story of being on a meditation retreat with uh, two teachers, Kamala Masters and Steve Armstrong. And they had been doing this 10-day retreat for years at a retreat center in Washington State called Cloud Mountain. I don't know if they still do this. I'm very curious if they do. But on the, the seventh day, I think it is, at lunch, after people have been there for you know almost to the end of the 10-day retreat, they have a dessert. And at lunch... Uh, you know, lunch is eaten in silence and they, they wheel out or the, the people who are cooking wheel out freshly baked brownies and a whole spread of, um, of ice cream. And 
I have to say, it was a real moment for me of realizing, wow, this was a very charged thing to do and a very evocative thing to do in a contemplative space. People were deep in practicing mindful eating and and everyone had really different experiences. We debriefed it later. Some people were euphoric, some people were pissed and that that someone would invite that kind of stimulus into that environment because they maybe they had an intense relationship with food. It helped me realize, wow, everyone of us has a different relationship with food. So I'm wondering how you, how do you think about sweets? And when you're working with people, what's, what's your guidance? I love to talk about sweets, especially, oh, yeah? yeah, absolutely. Because they're, I mean, it's a, it's a charged, as you said, charged topic, charged food group. I mean, the two, many of the two main things that many of my clients and folks that I interact with on the internet, for example, on Instagram, but um, throughout our culture, the two main foods that are demonized are, well, food group and then food within that food group are carbohydrates and then also sweets. So how do I think about and want to talk about sweets? I'd like to start with, which might give us some insight into the experience that some of the people had there, which is some of what we've learned over time from research. So a lot of people talk about um, sweets as being addictive. That is a common narrative that exists in our culture. And one of the studies or infographics that are often cited is a brain scan. Yeah, I think I've seen this one. Yeah. (laughs) So you might know where I'm going. So it's a brain scan and then there's a brain next to it. So it's a brain, if you will, quote unquote, on sweets. And then, <laughs> and then they show this certain part of the brain lit up. And then there's a brain next to it that shows a brain that has consumed cocaine. And then they show the same part of the brain lit up. And so X plus Y equals Z, right? That's how life goes. Totally a joke. Um, so in that way, people will say, well, then because the same part of the brain is being lit up, this means that sugar is equally as addictive as drugs, in this case, cocaine. And a couple of things I want to say about that. One is food is different than drugs because we do not, with the exception, I want to say with the exception of um, folks that need um, medication support for mental health. But generally when we're we're thinking about um, recreational drugs, cocaine, heroin, crack, et cetera, um, we don't need those to, to, to stay alive, to to live, to exist. So that's a, that's an important distinguisher. The other thing is, and I think that this is actually a really important nuance, all we're seeing in those brain scans is the part of the brain that releases dopamine. And that's important because if we had other brain scans, we'd also see, for example, if we think about the things that, that uh, release dopamine, if we showed a mom cooing at their baby or someone engaging in a hug for more than 20 seconds or someone maybe scrolling through social media, right? We'd see that same part lit up of the brain, but we don't always say, oh, someone's addicted to their baby or addicted mm-hmm. to hugs, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's a false equivalency and something that we really want to be mindful of. It's just like, okay, we're just seeing that someone's experiencing pleasure. That's it. Mm, right. Right? right. Then beyond that, I think what's even more interesting in regards to the euphoria piece that you were referencing, that they maybe you or they hadn't um, had any kind of sweets. And then on the seventh day, they did. Right. That what we've learned from research, interestingly, is that when we restrict food 
especially carbohydrates and sweets are a type of carbohydrate when we restrict sweets. When we finally do end up eating them, our brain actually has a heightened dopamine release. Wow, no kidding. Yes, yeah. So when people say or hear you're addicted or you can be addicted to sweets and they were restricting sweets and that can be in thought or action. I shouldn't be having this. I can only have one or actually like I'm not bringing this into my house. When we finally do get exposure to it, it can very much feel like we're addicted because we do get that overwhelming sense of euphoria, that overwhelming sense of pleasure, which can evoke a lot of fear in people as well because of that experience. Mm -hmm. And what we see over time, and this is also the difficulty of addiction research around food, is that they're not controlling for disordered eating, eating disorders, restrictive behaviors. And so there's a real miss on on that part um, of of the research. And it's interesting to think about it as well from an evolutionary survival perspective. We didn't always have regular access to carbohydrates, but we need carbohydrates. And so um, when we finally did get exposure to and access to them, our, our brains wanted to reinforce it. Like, hey, this is a good thing. Keep doing this. Keep searching for them. It is the primary source of fuel for our brain and body. And so, you know, if we zoom out for a moment, it, it makes sense um, mm-hmm. from that perspective. So the euphoria also makes sense that a lot of people had on that retreat of feeling that sort of overwhelming sense of pleasure and joy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you parsing that out a little bit. Like it's not prescriptive. You saying, yeah, sweet, you know, here's what you should do with sweets. It's really that when you peel back the layers, there's just multiple things to consider. And I imagine to be a kind of a person-centered approach of what each person will need. And Well, I was going to add that a lot of the behavior is also too a feeling out of control around sweets are a result of restricting sweets. So people that have uh, a normative relationship with food and sweets where all foods are acceptable uh, and encouraged and that there's a place for everything, similar to what you were noting earlier of that book that you read where the kid was enjoying it. They hadn't yet been told that they, quote unquote, shouldn't be having sweets. We see that people tend not to feel out of control anymore, that they have the amount of sweets that feels good to them. Um, And sometimes that can be one or sometimes that can be a couple, but it's not from a thinking perspective. It's from what is happening in their body and having that guide their experience. Great. This is where mindfulness, the tie-in, the trauma pieces around a quality of enhanced self-regulation or an experience of enhanced self-regulation, which I don't know if you would map that over, but it sounds like it around that, about a different relationship with food. Yes, absolutely. That it's very similar in that it's very difficult, at least in a sustained way long-term, to think our way out of decreasing our sweet intake. It's really the, the more we release control over time, the greater sense of control that we have long-term to sort of put it into language that we tend to think about it, but it's no longer guided by sort of a uh, top-down, like I'm thinking through this, but rather I don't feel any threat anymore of this being taken away from me and I have continuous access to food. And therefore now I know I have choice and decision around this. That's great. This has been, this is so much helpful information. It's this combo for me talking to you of um, having now more sense of what I don't know uh, but also some practical, um, I don't know, some practical tips, but I actually, maybe this is a place we could, we could end is if you were talking to 
a listener who was a, a mindfulness teacher, a yoga teacher, for example, or someone just working in a contemplative setting and they were to encounter or be working with someone who disclosed that they experienced disordered eating and this person wasn't necessarily trained as a dietitian or in, in mental health. What would you say, or what would you, what would you want them to know? And I realize it's a massive question, but what are, what are some things that they might um, be aware of? So the first thing I would want them to be aware of is how, how much of an impact they're having on that person, because it is not easy to disclose when we're struggling, especially considering the culture that we exist within. Thinking back to all the aforementioned things that we discussed together, it is really hard for people to finally say, I'm struggling there's something not quite right. And we usually only do that with people that we really trust. Mm -hmm. So first, first and foremost, just kind of grounding themselves in, this is significant. And I am maybe the only or one of the very few people in their life that they're trusting in this moment. That's and that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's great. The second thing I would encourage folks to do is, and I'm sure many people would instinctually do this, is to thank them for sharing what they've shared. Um, because again, just going back to the difficulty of, of finally saying I'm struggling and I'm not really sure where to go. And then the next thing I would want them to be mindful of is helping to support them as best as possible. I know that we all have our own capacity and limits and we need to have our own boundaries, but to help to connect them to someone that can support them or does have more expertise around disordered eating and eating disorders. I am a firm believer though of very much a team approach. It doesn't mean that there aren't lots of things that all kinds of practitioners can do to help support that person, um, but that they're mindful of not sort of taking, crossing that line, I guess, if you will, um, presuming that they know offering advice around food and eating, but rather, I'm so glad that you told me I'd love to be able to connect you to some people or to some resources. And if you want to take that further, depending on the relationship or your own capacity, you know, we can offer to support them in, in getting connected. But sometimes it's, you know, just a resource list or following up and checking in. Hey, did you reach out to some of those people? How did that go? Um, yeah, those would be. There's, there's so many gems in there. I uh, so I'm here. I'm hearing you say, "Don't just tell someone." Have you thought about just eating this? Or don't don't do that. No, don't do that. No, and I realize the pickle, if you will, that a lot of clinicians and probably mindfulness practitioners. I'm thinking yoga practitioners, physical therapists. Gosh, the list can go on and on. Are in because they're dealing with people that are struggling with their relationship with food and their body. And if they are someone that they trust, or even just in passing, they're going to be talking to them about stuff. And so <clears throat> first, all of the things that I mentioned, but also I would encourage people to, those that are listening, practitioners, to start really getting curious about their own relationship with food and their body. I think that's often a real gift that we can give to the people that we help to start to unpack and get support around a relationship with food. And sometimes support can start with books, podcasts, hmm. social media, 
And then, you know, groups, depending on our access and privilege, individual counseling and support, um, so that we can then be more grounded or slightly more grounded in the kind of way that we navigate those kinds of conversations and how we support other people. That's great. That seems like maybe a good place to end. I will um, be sure to link uh, to your work and site, but do you want to say anything about how you're spending your time or how people can contact you or any additional resources that you want to lift up right now? Yeah. So um, I am based in Seattle, Washington. My uh, I run a group practice. We specialize in eating disorders, disordered eating, body image concerns. The website is bravespacenutrition.com. Instagram is also at Brave Space Nutrition, same on TikTok. Um, uh, I'm also on Twitter at RDK Metzlar. So there's lots of different ways that folks can reach me. Um, I always respond to DMs, so that's a great place. But also feel free to email me and reach out if anyone is wanting more resources. On my website as well, I will add, they're under resources. There's a tab. There is a podcast page and there's also a book page. So anyone that's curious in knowing more, they can definitely check that out. I want to name a podcast that I am absolutely loving right now yeah, and would highly it. recommend folks tune into, which is Maintenance Phase. Um, it is funny, informative. It's led by two reporters, but they talk all about the themes of diets and diet culture. And it is approachable for anyone, no matter where they are. Um, and so I, I definitely recommend that one. But if folks are wanting resources, that's definitely a place to check out on my website too. That's great. Maintenance phase. Is that what it was? Ma maintenance phase. Yes. I'll check it out. I'll check it yeah. out. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your work. And um, I'm sure we'll get to talk again. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks also to Catherine for coming on. If you'd like to learn more about trauma sensitive mindfulness work, you can visit my website at davidtrelevin.com. We have some free resources there and you can check out a training if you'd like to go deeper into the work. And also, this is our last podcast of 2021. So just want to take a moment to thank all of you for listening. It's a really great and engaged community here and really love digging into these different topics around trauma-sensitive mindfulness. So if you have any suggestions of topics you'd like us to cover or people you think we should talk to, please write us at support at davidtrelevin.com and we will see you in 2022. Have a safe end of year. Mm -hmm.